Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. And today we continue our special series called Codes for a Healthy Earth, Cultivating Peace with All of Life. The urgent and complex global challenges we face will not be resolved from within the same systems that created them. Today, people of all cultures and ages are rising up around the world to demand a fundamental transformation of how we organize ourselves as a species. Hundreds of millions of people and millions of groups are working on countless regenerative and compassionate solutions. Throughout this vast and diverse global movement, there's a growing recognition that we already have the knowledge, skills, ideas, technologies, and resources, as well as the wise, service-based leadership to effectively address all of our escalating crises. Our primary challenge is to align and organize effectively for whole systems healing and transformation. Today, we are going to talk to a very special guest, a force of nature himself, who has a world of knowledge, wisdom, and experience addressing these global challenges. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your mind and heart into this moment, settle into your essential wholeness, and listen in as I introduce our guest Award-winning geneticist and broadcaster, David Suzuki co-founded the David Suzuki Foundation in 1990. In 1975, he helped launch and host the CBC Radio's Quirks and Quarks. In 1979, he became familiar to audiences around the world to host CBC's TV's The Nature of Things which still airs episodes today. From 1969 to 2001, he was a faculty member of the University of British Columbia and is currently Professor Emeritus. He is widely recognized as a world leader in sustainable ecology and has received numerous awards for his work, including a UNESCO Prize for Science and a United Nations Environment Program Medal. He is also a companion of the Order of Canada. He has 29 honorary degrees from universities in Canada, the U.S., and Australia. And for his support in Canada's Indigenous peoples, David has been honored with eight names and formal adoption by two First Nations. In 2010, the National Film Board of Canada and Legacy Lecture Productions produced Force of Nature, the David Suzuki movie, which won a People's Choice Documentary Award at the 2010 Toronto International Film Festival. The film weaves together scenes from the places and events that shaped Suzuki's life and career with a filming of his last lecture, which he describes as a distillation of my life and thoughts, my legacy, what I want to say before I die. And I am extremely honored to welcome you, David, to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, thank you for that far too uh, generous introduction. (laughs) Well, you know what? I'm going to speak to that for a moment because I typically, 98% of the time, introduce our guests in a more abbreviated fashion to give you the gist of who they are and move on. And yet your life and your voice, your wisdom, David, everything about you is so precious. I think it's one of uh, one of our world's most precious voices alive right now. And I want to really allow our listeners here to feel the breadth and the depth and the gravity of your wisdom and, and what you have to share with us today. So, Well, to, uh, to, uh, to Julie, to an American audience, I think the one thing you omitted that, that I'd like to have been mentioned is uh, thanks to the United States, I received a, a top education in the U.S., both as an undergrad and, and grad student, and I'm forever grateful to the United States for that. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you for acknowledging that and bringing that in. David, I I know we're going to have a fascinating conversation. One of the things that I really appreciate about you is you are so incredibly wise, intelligent, and yet your voice is yummy and down to earth. Like whenever (laughs) we watch, I can watch a video no matter what. I can watch that documentary film. I can watch you speak in front of thousands of people, and it just feels like I'm sitting in my living room with you having a cup of coffee (laughs) and I I love that about you thank you yeah so I have a first traditional question here on the show David that I do want to ask you and I'm really looking forward to your answer because we like to set this show in a bigger more whole worldview a a bigger meme a, a bigger understanding a bigger perspective and so I always like to ask my guests if you'd share with our listeners of course the title of our show what does all things connected mean to you well, I think that is the most profound insight that I've uh, acquired, and I really got it when we did a film with Indigenous people who were fighting against logging in their islands in uh, northern British Columbia. And I interviewed a young Haida uh, artist who had led the fight against the logging for several years, and I said to him, Look, uh, you have over 50% unemployment in your community. Many of the the loggers are your people. Why, uh, if they cut those forests down, you're an artist. What difference does it make to you? Why are you fighting against the logging? And his answer, at the time, I didn't get it. He said, yeah, if they cut the trees down, uh, uh, I'll still be here. But I guess then we'll be just like everybody else. And I couldn't figure out what the heck was he talking about until I watched the rushes back in Vancouver. And I realized what he was saying is that to him, to be Haida means to be connected to the land, that you destroy the trees, you destroy what it is that makes the Haida who they are. Yes, he'll still be alive as a biological creature, but he won't be Haida because the connection, the air, the water, the fish, the birds, all of that is what makes the Haida who they are. And he says, he said to me later off camera, he said, you know, that's the way it is with everybody. You live in Vancouver, you're created by Vancouver. Do you think you're somehow separate from the other people or the air or the water? Where do you think it's coming from? And as I thought about that, 
I realized that in the most profound way, he was absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I love this exercise that uh, was proposed by a Harvard uh, astronomer, who's Harlow Shapley, who said, you know, what happens to one breath of air? And, uh, you know, you think about the path of a breath, and we have to breathe 20 to 40 times a minute. We don't even think about it, but you take one to two liters of air, and that's it. Deep down into the most moist, warm, intimate part of your body, your lungs, and your lungs are filled with these little grape-like structures called alveoli. They're they're little uh, cells and lined with a three-layered membrane called a surfactant, and the surfactant reduces surface tension. So when the air comes in, it sticks to the surfactant, and immediately oxygen and whatever else is in the air goes into our bodies, taken up by red blood cells that pump it around with each beat of our heart, circulates to every cell in our body. And when we breathe out, you don't breathe all of the air out, because if you did that, your lungs would collapse. About half of it stays in your lungs. So you can't draw a line that says, uh, the air ends here, and I begin there. There is no line. It's embedded in us. It's stuck to us, and it's circulating through our bodies. And of course, when we breathe out, uh, it immediately goes up into the nostrils of any other creature around. And the exercise Harlow Shapley uh, gave many years ago, he said, let's follow one breath of air. Well, how do you do that? Uh, Most of it is nitrogen. Uh, 19% is oxygen. When you breathe it in, um, you know, we take a lot of the oxygen out. Some of the nitrogen is absorbed. But 1% of the air you breathe in is an element called argon. Argon is called an inert gas. It doesn't react chemically with anything. So you breathe it in, goes into your body, you breathe it out, comes right back out. So he said, let's follow one breath of air through the argon, which is 1% of the air that you took into your lungs. How many atoms of argon? Are there in one breath of air? And he calculates it's three times 10 to the 18th atoms. Now, you're a, you're a scientist. You know that one breath of air with three t- followed by 18 zeros, that is a lot of argon. So what happens? That breath of air goes out of your, your lungs and doors and windows open and out it goes. And Shapley calculates that a year later, every breath you take will have about 15 argon atoms that were in that one original breath that you breathed out a year ago. Every breath we take has hundreds of thousands of argon atoms that were in the bodies of Joan of Arc and Jesus Christ. Every breath we take has argon atoms that were in the bodies of dinosaurs and saber-toothed tigers. How can we think that we are not utterly embedded in, connected through a matrix of air. It's in us, it's circulating through us, it ties us to the, the past and to future generations. And this, this incredible thing called the atmosphere or air should be regarded, and indigenous people around the world regard air as sacred. And something sacred, you honor it, and you care for it, because it's beyond price. And yet we have evolved into a creature that dumps 
whatever we want into that air, and we're unwilling to even pay a price for doing that. Look at how the fossil fuel industries are fighting like mad against carbon taxes or any restrictions on what they pour into the air. Air is sacred. Air connects us. We're embedded in air. Connects us to everything around the world. Sorry, that was a very long answer to a short question. It was a beautiful and a profound answer that, that you know, just brings me right back to the the state of where we're at. I'm like, I'm kind of like chuckling because that was a really beautiful example of the web of life, right? That all living things, this biodiversity, everything is interconnected and it, this web of life creates everything we need to stay healthy and alive, right? It's, it's everything. You talk about that. And so with this truth, David, why do you think we still have this denial in our mass consciousness? I mean, I can well, see the denial from corporate greed, but why mass consciousness? What are we missing? Well, I think that we've been puffed up. With, we're so impressed with ourselves that we now have elevated ourselves and the structures we create uh, above the very things that keep us alive. You know, for 95% of human existence, and all indications are that we evolved in the great uh, uh, savannas of Africa 150,000 years ago. That's why I keep waiting for the Ku Klux Klan to invite me to give a talk. I'm a geneticist. I, I've followed the way DNA, the genetic material, is used to trace the movement of human beings over time. And I want to tell the KKK, we're all Africans, for God's sake. What the hell is your problem? That's where we evolved, in the great grasslands of Africa. And for 95% of our existence, we lived very humbly. We were nomadic hunter-gatherers. We had to carry everything we owned on our backs, following animals and plants through the seasons. And when you live that way, you understand absolutely that you are utterly embedded in and dependent on nature for your well-being and your survival. In the last 5% of our existence, when agriculture was discovered 10,000 years ago, it began a whole shift in the way that we live. We no longer had to be nomads. We could now grow a, a dependable source of food. We could build permanent homes or structures we, that became villages. And the whole, tr uh, the, the whole movement of, into civilization then happened through agriculture. But farmers understand very, very well that weather, climate, the seasons determine whether you survive or not. They understand that the amount of snow in the winter is related to moisture in the soil in the summer. You need insects for pollinating flowering plants. There are certain species of plants that take nitrogen from the air and fix it as fertilizer. Farmers understand profoundly that we are still utterly dependent on nature. But I believe that a number of things have happened in the last 500 to 1,000 years. One was the, the creation in our, as we began this track of civilization, of religions in which we began to see ourselves as very special and, and different. Some religions actually say that we're created in the image of God. And so we've more or less taken it all over and we're the center of the action. So 
what I submit is for most of human existence, we lived in what's called an ecocentric way of seeing ourselves in the world. We saw that we were a part of a very complex web of living and non-living things that, that were utterly important for our, our well-being. But we began to shift through religion into thinking, no, 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 wait, we are special. We're smart. We were created in the, in the image of God. And so we, we moved into what's called an anthropocentric track that we now think that we're at the center of everything and everything else revolves around us. And when you get the, the, uh, the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution, where we began to think we're, that our, our creativity through our brains, you know, really, uh, we began to make uh, machines that could work 24 hours a day that didn't need a, a lunch break or a pee break. Uh, uh, we could, uh, we could do things that took us way beyond our biological constraints. We could make telescopes that peer to the edge of the universe. We could make microscopes that discover a, 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 a world of life and a drop of water. We could, you know, make machines that could travel faster than any other creature on Earth. And so we began, it became easy to think, well, we're so smart, we don't have to be bound by the laws of nature. We, we can invent our way out of it. And even now, as we con confront the, the great uh, twin ecological crises of climate change and extinction, biodiversity uh, loss, we really think, and you said in your introduction, we think that we know enough and have the tools to be able to get our way out of it. I don't think we, have the, we know because we don't know. What the heck we've created, we've changed, we've transformed the, the biological, chemical, and physical properties of the planet on a geological scale. That's why geologists now are saying we're in the Anthropocene epoch, the geological time when humans are the dominant force transforming the makeup of the planet. We don't have any idea what true sustainability is anymore because we've altered the world so greatly. And, you know, when I, I can see what we're doing now, we've had denial, denial, denial all this time when the fossil fuel industry, for example, has known for over 40 years that the, the burning of fossil fuels was causing the planet to heat up. And, uh, but they're still pushing the denial in order to keep making money. And as the reality sinks in, and I hope Australia burning is one of those reality points, What's going to happen? We're going to turn to say, ah, it's too late. We've got to turn to geoengineering. We've got to take over the atmosphere, and we've got now to engineer the, our way out of this, and that is the greatest folly because it's just a continuation of the concept. We're at the center of the action, and it's all for us. Mm. Oh, David, so like goosebumps and I'm sitting up in my chair going, okay, so with, with listening to you right now, um, I know you speak about living, you've written about living in harmony and balance. And so without it being geoengineering, or perhaps it's now we have to geoengineer as we come back into harmony and balance and really come back to nature like what is our prescription you're a thinker you're an activist you're a visionary what is a visionary well, for I, a future I on think, this planet 
we just don't know what it's going to take. But uh, we're clearly we're beyond uh, recognizing the crisis. The crisis is here, and Australia burning is just uh, has become a symbol of what's happening with the planet. And you know, people say, "Well, we're we're killing the planet." We're not killing the planet. The planet was here long before we were and did fine. And after we're gone, the planet will continue to do whatever it does. We'll have changed it, but the planet's not in danger. It's, it's about, it's about us. And, um, I, I, I used to say, uh, you know, I feel like we're heading in a brick wall at a hundred miles an hour in a giant car and everybody in the car is arguing about where they want to sit. And someone's got to say, for God's sake, put, put the brakes on and turn the wheel. We've got to change paths and slow down. But the people that are saying that are locked in the trunk. Nobody's listening to them. I don't use that metaphor anymore. I say, I use the cartoon of Roadrunner. You know Roadrunner, that little bird that beats along? And Roadrunner is being chased by Wile E. Coyote, and they come to the edge of a cliff. And, you know, Roadrunner does a 90-degree turn, but Wile has got so much momentum built up, he goes right over the edge. And there's that moment when he's suspended in the air and realizes I'm, I'm past the edge of the lip and then down he goes, that's where we're at now. We're over the edge, but that's not an excuse for saying it's too late. We can't do anything in the cartoon roadrunner always falls to the bottom of the Canyon. And I'm saying we've got to do everything we can now to find some kind of of a place that we can grab onto so that we don't have to fall so far down. But we're over the edge of the over the edge of the cliff. So um, what what do we do? You say, well, clearly we have to radically reduce our demands uh, of the earth. We've got to stop putting so much carbon into the atmosphere, and we have a very, very uh, small budget left that we can continue to do that before climate chaos absolutely sets in. Um, so radically reduce not only our fossil fuel use, but uh, but our, our consumption. I mean, we're just so far beyond the necessities of life because we've created an economy that depends on consumption. And, you you know, my mother and father married during the Great Depression and the Great Depression had a huge impact on their lives. And they, when I was growing up, banged home the lessons they learned from the Depression. You know, save some for tomorrow, live within your means, share, don't be greedy, help your neighbors. You may one day need their help. You have to work hard for the money to buy the necessities in life, but you don't run after money as if somehow that makes you a better, more important person. Those are things that they passed on to me that we that seems so quaint and irrelevant in a world in which consumption has become our passion, uh, the way that we live and the, what we live for. You know, we were incarcerated during World War II because we were Japanese Canadians. And, and uh, when we came out of the war, we were absolutely impoverished. We lost everything during the war. I have worn blue jeans all my life because denim wears like iron. And when I see kids paying hundreds of dollars for brand new blue jeans that are already ripped, I'm wondering what the hell kind of creature have we become? 
this is absolute madness. So, uh, but that's what happens when consumption becomes the an integral part of our, our economy. That all has to change radically, and that's not going to be easy. The other thing is, what has been the very source of our existence and well-being is nature. And we don't know how nature works, but we can certainly try our best to rewild the planet. We've got to pull back. We've had parks now in which we try to preserve little chunks of nature. We need parks that that enclose humans. Humans have got to stay off most of the, the planet and give nature a chance to heal and rebuild herself. And, yeah. uh, you know, how we do that, I mean, that's our opportunity it seems to me but we don't you know we're just make groping our way now in an alien world our our species didn't evolve in a world like this we've created something we're not prepared to live in mm. Ooh, right there is a beautiful statement for all of us to really um be- contemplate and and bring in and I I really appreciate you speaking in that way of helping us see our influence on the problem um, that's that's also a part of the solution that obviously this is this is about whole systems change and Absolutely. yeah and and so this consciousness this um, the way we have viewed the world is an important part of the solution for whole systems change in it. And it's, it's in everything from those blue jeans to the park down the street to the fires in Australia right now. So we need to take a quick break, David, but when we come back, we're going to muse into the codes for healthy earth. Um, You've got to see them. I have some questions for you and, and just so our listeners know, you are also the author of the declaration of interdependence, which is a beautiful um, prelude into this conversation. So I'm going to bring that back up right after break. But for now, we're here with David Suzuki. I'm Dr. Julie Kroll, and you're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. We'll be right back. This is Namdi Asamoah. I play football for the Philadelphia Eagles, but what I do off the field with United Way might be more important. I'm a volunteer tutor and mentor. Why? Because over a million kids a year drop out of school, and that's not okay. It takes 12 years to create a graduate, but it takes about the same time to create a dropout. And the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be me, or it could be you. Studies show that if we get to these kids earlier, their chances are better. And kids who read well by third grade are more likely to graduate. So join me in United Way. Suit up and take the pledge. Become a volunteer reader, tutor, or mentor. Because when a child succeeds, we all succeed. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge at unitedway.org. Brought to you by United Way, the Ad Council, and the National Football League. Okay, gang. So, chances are there'll never be an emergency ever, ever again. Mm -hmm. But, just in case, let's talk about a plan. Okay. So, who's going to do what? 
Anyone? Uh... Yeah, okay, perfect. We'll figure it out as we go. So, who is going to grab the go bag? What's a go bag? It is a bag we do not have that is filled with things we really, really need in an emergency. Guess we won't have to worry about it then. Ah, good point. So, uh, we all know who to call if something happens then, right? I'd have to call Jill, Devin, Melissa, Karen, and Bruce. And I will try to call all of you, but Greg doesn't have a cell phone. Dad's phone will have a dead battery. No doubt. And Julie will be on the phone with Jill, Devin, Melissa, Karen, and Bruce. Well, this is great. <laughs> I am so glad that we don't have a plan. I know. Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov kids for tips and information. A public service announcement brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Today, you ate Greek yogurt. You took the train. You wondered why people spend so much time reading celebrity blogs. You read a celebrity blog. You planned a workout. You skipped it. You did all the things that one normally does the day before a devastating earthquake shakes the community to the ground. You never know when the day before is the day before. Prepare for tomorrow at ready.gov today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ed Council. Think you could easily get to your family if a disaster struck right now? Think you can wing it during an emergency because you're a New Yorker? Most parents don't realize that protecting your family starts long before an actual disaster strikes. It starts today by being prepared and making a plan. To learn how, take our readiness challenge at nyc.gov slash York or call 311 for information. In this online tool, you'll be faced with real-life challenges, teaching you the importance of being prepared for a disaster. Brought to you by the New York City Office of Emergency Management and the Ad Council. An entire station devoted to your personal development. Welcome to Empower Radio. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and perhaps listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also, stay connected all week on my Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. Get connected in one of my private groups or individual programs. I invite you to be be a more conscious, courageous, and compassionate co-creator of the beautiful world we want to see. We're talking about that world today here with David Suzuki. You can find out so much more. Look up David Suzuki online. You can find the David Suzuki Foundation as well. Um, look in the links for that. I think it's davidsuzukifoundation.org. Is that right, David? That's it. All righty. Also, the Codes for Healthy Earth. We're going to talk about those in just a second here. They were co-initiated by Shelley Ostroff and Jan Golding with Together in Creation. And the creation of this document was a collaborative process with leaders from diverse sectors in over 30 countries. The, time, the framework can be freely adopted by any group or movement as a collective compass for coordinated citizen-led action toward the healing and regeneration of the planet and and all its inhabitants, please go to codes.earth to learn more and endorse those codes. We are going to talk about those. David, the Codes for Healthy Earth is a really a beautiful and concise aggregate of many declarations, charters, manifestos, and creeds that already exist. And you wrote the popular declaration of interdependence. And I know that made an impact in the psyche of our world. In my 
arena it did. And I know that, that things like these codes, charters, declarations can make a difference. I'm wondering from your perspective, if you could just share what makes codes for a healthy earth different, perhaps what even makes that important now in our consciousness on the planet today? Well, I think it's it's a, a, a call to to see the world in a well. First of all, it, it takes a systems approach, which you know we tend to focus on on very specific things, and I think it's that that um, bigger picture uh, that we need to see it in. And from my standpoint, uh, you know, we have to revert from an anthropocentric way of seeing the world that we think it's all about us to an ecocentric way and people are going well well how do we do that i mean we you know that's not easy to do well what do we think indigenous people represent what are they fighting for they're fighting for their way of life and and their culture and their place on the planet which they continue to maintain through an ecocentric lens we have a great deal that we can learn from the indigenous peoples around the world and that's for me, uh, I'd like to think that, you know, your, your uh, code is, is, uh, states very clearly about the need to, to, uh, to learn from indigenous people around the world. And I think that's what's uh, the, the call that's desperately needed now. You know, I, I was listening to one of your talks um, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, and I had this thought at that time when you're bringing up the indigenous that Oftentimes, when we see the indigenous fighting for this ecocentric way of looking at the world, I think we make this assumption that they're trying to protect their land or their life or their lifestyle. But they really are here as this barometer for all of us carrying this wisdom and medicine of how we can survive on this planet. I think it's like this um, this clarion call for us to get back to our authentic, true nature. And you've talked about that for so long. So thanks for bringing that piece in. I'm, I'm also wondering, so the codes are a call. They're a call. They, they wake us to really a more systems, ecocentric view of the world, which I love. Thank you for bringing that up. And I also think that these, these codes really... Um, also bring in the voice of earth herself when you were talking earlier in the first half about air like we are air and we are water we are earth we are fire and so moving us into this ecocentric place of viewing our own lives can help us to to integrate that and i, I think that the codes can do that. So I, I, I'm wondering about what are the principles or this comprehensive framework? What's the most important piece, in your opinion, of what we really need to look at today? Everybody asks me that all the time, especially children, because they're all hoping there's some magic bullet. There is no magic yeah. bullet. And, you know, to me, as long as we can, and let me say that, that, you know, I'm very, very proud of uh, the organization that my wife and I created, but we, along with all the other environmental groups, 
have been pulling our punches. We say, oh, we can't say that. That'll scare people. Uh, that's too depressing. We've got to find the, the, the positive uh, things in this story. And we've all skated around uh, stating the fact that we are in deep trouble and the very survival of our species now is at stake. And we've got to say that. And what happens over the next 10 years is going to determine how bad uh, it's going. Uh, our, our children and grandchildren are, are going to uh, what kind of a world they're going to wake up in. So, um, you know, I, I just think if we continue with the same mindset where every time we, we discuss a, a, a problem, we have to say, well, you know, this is the economic possibilities or this, the, there'll be new jobs created. If we keep using the economy as if somehow it must be served before we take a, a step, we're, we're just in the same problem. Our, we've created these systems, you know, we've created our legal system. Our legal system is all based on human rights and property and so on. Who the hell do we think we are? What about the right of a songbird to live as it evolved to live? Or the right of a forest to exist as a community of organisms? Or the right of a river to flow as it has evolved over thousands of years? I mean, what, a, mm. what kind of a creature would think we can set all of the, the limits to our legal system and then we create an economy now the economy is comes from the same root word as ecology economic ecos is the Greek word for household or domain and ecologists study that our domain to determine what are the the roots of sustainability economists manage our household now you would think any economist would say hey, gee uh, uh, let's ask these those ecologists what are the rules that we have to live under but no they they exist the economists think that uh, they're creating Creation uh, is fine, and uh, and uh, that the rest of nature must be uh, subsumed by this construct. And yet, the construct itself is based on the very notion of the creed of cancer. It's based on the assumption it can grow forever. How can you grow anything? in a finite world forever. Growth now has become the dominant way we judge the success of, of uh, our activities. How did the economy grow, the GDP, number of jobs? Uh, all of this stuff becomes a criterion for whether or not we're doing well. And mm. you can't have endless growth. The economy is built on a, an unsustainable uh, assumption that growth can be sustained indefinitely and must be. That's crazy. And it regards nature's services as an externality, as irrelevant, because the economy is really built on human inventiveness and productivity. And nature is just there to assist us in, in that whole process. And then we create legal uh, political systems in which uh, uh, we think that we can manage uh, manage uh, the, the the future. And yet the legal system, you know, just look at what's happening to the legal system or political system in the United States now. And it's not just the U.S. where this is happening. It's happening uh, in many parts of the world today. The politicians get elected. And this is uh, their, their highest priority when they're elected. And I was astonished when Trump got elected. The first thing he's talking about is his second term, is re-election. 
And that means that anything, you know, that's longer term, that is what kind of a world we're leaving to our children or grandchildren, are, those issues are not on the political agenda because children don't vote. This is why you're seeing this revolt of young people who are saying, look, you're not paying attention to the kind of world you're leaving for us. But politics itself is really an impediment, it seems to me, to doing mm. the right thing. Yeah, David, you're going to appreciate this. I, I I really want you to muse into this with me. I'm going to read a statement from the codes that's in the declaration. But as you talk about moving from economy to ecology, I'm going to add one more, that we move from economy to ecology to eco-governance. Shelley, the creator, one of the co-founders of these codes, has written about eco-governance. And, and one of the statements that I know you've read in the code says, we affirm that the only legitimate purpose of governance is to protect and cultivate the health and vitality of the planet and all its inhabitants for generations to come. Can you respond to that, eco-governance? Right on, right on. It seems to me that what we have to do is understand that it is this incredibly beautiful, complex web of life that provides us, as you said earlier, with everything that we need to to live and have a good, uh, healthy life. Um, And as long as we maintain that as our understanding and our actions then must uh, uh, support that. We're, then how we govern ourselves, we, we determine that. But the, the goal is the same. Let me tell you a story. I gotta, I've been fighting against the development of the tar sands in Alberta for many, many years. Mm. And it's become a very, very uh, uh, ugly battle going on. And four years ago, I got uh, a call from the CEO of one of the largest oil companies in the tar sands. And I was quite surprised. He said, could I talk to you? I said, of course, I'm, I don't believe in fighting. We've got to talk. And so the next day he showed up at my office and I said, you know, I thanked him and said how honored I was and, and all that stuff. But I said, before you come in my office, I'd like you to leave your identity as a CEO outside the door. I want to meet you man to man, human to human, because I want to establish what we agree on because what's the point of talking about oil and energy and, and climate change and all of that if we don't start from a point of agreement? Mm. Otherwise, we're just all over the place. Now, this is not why he came down to see me, but he was a good man. And to, to his credit, you know, he he came in reluctantly, but he came in and I said, look, I understand this is not what you expected. So let me explain uh, what I'm thinking. I said, we live in a world that is shaped and constrained by laws of nature. And there's nothing we can do about that. We have to live within those laws. Physics tells us we cannot build a rocket that will travel faster than the speed of light. The law of gravity says if I trip, I'm going to hit my head on the floor. The first and second law of thermodynamics tells us we can't build a perpetual motion machine. These are laws of nature that we live within. Chemistry, it's the same. The atomic property of the elements determines freezing point, melting point, boiling point, uh, reaction rates, diffusion constants. All of that stuff is determined by the elementary uh, properties of of different kinds of, of atoms. And we live within that. And in biology, it's the same. All species have a maximum number 
that can be sustained in a in an ecosystem or a habitat that is determined by what's called the carrying capacity of the habitat or ecosystem exceed that number and your population will crash and we say well humans are different you know we have uh, we're smart we're not limited to a habitat or a, a ecosystem but we live within the biosphere the zone of air water and land where all life exists and there's no question the way we're living now is far beyond the capacity of the biosphere to support us indefinitely there will be a crash it has to happen because the earth the, the biosphere simply can't sustain it we sustain the illusion that everything's fine by using up the rightful legacy of our children and grandchildren mm-hmm. you know just talk to any elder about what things were like when they were a kid they'll tell you it used to be very different yeah it used to be because we've used up what they took for granted uh, in the name of uh, of the economy and uh, I, I said to this CEO, I said, you know, we're animals. And I could see he didn't like being called an animal. And I said, what do you think is an animal is the most important thing that we, we need? And instead of giving me the answer immediately, he said, he, he kind of went, oh, well, uh, and I could see he's thinking of job, money. I said, Mr. CEO, if you don't have air for three minutes, you're dead. If you have to breathe polluted air, you're sick. So would you agree with me that clean air is a sacred trust from nature and it's our responsibility to to protect the quality of that air? And then I said, you and I are, are 60 to 70% water, but our bodies leak water and, and we have to keep topping it up. I said, if you don't have water for, for four to six days, you're dead. Breathe, drink polluted water, you're sick. So clean water is like clean air. And every bit, well, we can live a lot longer without food, but four to six weeks without food and every bit of our food was once alive. And so clean food and clean soil, which gives us most of our food, must be up there with clean air and clean water. And finally, as you said earlier, all of the energy in our body comes from the fire of the sun through photosynthesis. We get the energy in in chemicals that plants make and we store it and use it when we need to do work. And the miracle to me of life on this planet is those four elements that indigenous people call the four sacred elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Those are cleansed, created, replenished by the web of living things that Life is what cleanses those things. So I said, Mr. CEO, if you agree with me that those are the foundation of the way that we live, that other things like the economy, like capitalism, like governments, like religions, like corporations, like like the economy, these are all human created and we can change them. You can't change the laws of nature. I said, if you will shake hands with me on that understanding, I will do everything I can to help you and your company. What do you think he could do? If he were to go back to his shareholders and say, I had a discussion with Suzuki and whatever our company does, we can't mess with the air, the water, the soil, or biodiversity, he would get fired in a flash because that's not his job. His job is to make money for his shareholders, period. And mm-hmm. however he does it, it's, that's how he's going to be judged at how well he does it. So the system is fixed. The system itself is going to uh, destroy the planet. We've seen it big time with the tobacco industry. We're seeing it big time with the fossil fuel industry. We see it with the pharmaceutical industry. Making money is a driving force and nothing else 
uh, um, matters. You know, I thank you, David. This is the the gravity. This this issue is so big, like you say. And I'm going back to asking him to take off that hat and come in as a man and find that point of agreement. I, I think that that's a really important piece for all of us. As as our listeners come from every walk of life, my my question to you is, with that point of agreement, this like the codes can become this orienting principle that we can take into our schools, our healthcare institutions, our government, our like if we can create a common point of agreement and each of us do our work, whether we're the in problem, media. Or- the problem, Julie, is that the systems are fixed. Yeah. In order for him to maintain his position as a CEO of an oil company, he can't accept what I laid out to him, even though that is the reality of our planet. Yeah. He can't accept that and continue to be the CEO of an oil company. Right. And that's the problem. You know, he's a good man. He goes to church every Sunday. He loves to go camping with his kids. Now, after he left, he couldn't shake hands with me. When he left my office, I never heard from him again, but I did hear that a year later he was gone. He was no longer CEO. I have no idea what, what happened to him. The problem is you can't fix it from inside. If yeah. you're playing in the system, you've got to play by the constraints of that system. And those systems are fixed. They're, they're fixed because the, the, the biosphere isn't at the top of the agenda in those in those systems. So I'm, you know, and I've met so many uh, opponents in environmental battles, forest company executives, you know, who say, look, I love the, I love the environment. I love going canoeing with my kids. And, but the system constrains them and they can't, uh, they can't accept the, the, the conditions of environmentalists. So how you get the code becoming a part of those systems it seems to me we have to break down the systems. Yeah. Break down the systems. And now, I know, I, you know, I know what I'm saying is, is not very pleasant. And I, the environmentalists have too long. We've pulled our punches to try to seem to be very reasonable. And, uh, you know, we're trying within to, to, to find ways out. But I think it's time, way past time, to say we're in a real crisis now. Even the Canadian government passed a, a climate emergency statement in the in its last meeting. It hasn't the new uh, government hasn't met yet. And around the world, governments are saying this is a climate emergency, but they're all constrained by politics and economics. They can't do the big things that have to be done. The only way you do that is to treat it as if it's a war. And, you know, I'm always amazed at, at science fiction films. You get an alien from outer space comes and starts killing human beings indiscriminately. Right away, the, the, the prime minister of, of Britain is calling the, the premier of, of Russia, and they're calling the Chinese uh, premier because they've got a common enemy. Well, we've got a common enemy right now, and that is the, the mindset 
that uh, is not paying enough attention to the natural world. I, you know, we, we tend to dismiss indigenous people talking about Mother Earth. Oh, yeah, that's a very nice way of saying it. As it, We patronizingly regard it as a metaphor. The Earth is our mother. Every bit of what we create our bodies from, and uh, it comes out of the Earth. The Earth is our mother. What kind of an intelligent creature, knowing what we're doing to our mother, would continue to act in the way we do? We, you wouldn't treat your biological mother the way we do, Mother Earth. So if, if we, that simple thing of recognizing that the Earth really is our mother, and start treating her the way that she has treated us, it uh, would make a huge difference. David, the idea to treat it like we're at war is kind of a a new thought here to put out. Like, you're right. When we look at these big um, movies that come out and there's whatever's happening, it's like we band together and we have solutions. How do we create that urgency right now? Because people go, well, we're not at war. It's us. We're our own enemy. How do we create the urgency? That's the, that's the challenge. Uh, you know, I've looked back on the history of war in Canada, and during the Second World War, of course, we Japanese Canadians were incarcerated, but uh, the, what the government did under those conditions was absolutely astounding. They set up 28 new crown corporations, that is, organ, uh, um, they're, they're organizations that were set up to solve certain uh, problems uh, that were now outside of created by government, but outside of government, charged with doing uh, various parts of the economy. People were growing their own food in victory gardens. People were investing in victory bonds to support uh, uh, the war effort. People were were uh, foregoing uh, all kinds of things, rationing things. And, uh, you know, we we were, were together in this uh, uh, amazing uh, event where by the end of of World War II, it was astounding to see what we were, and in the United States, it's even uh, more stunning how many airplanes they were making every day and warships and all of this stuff. I mean, economically, it pulled the world out of a depression, and that's one of the problems is wars pull us out of depression, but they lead to a creativity innovation and change that you can't do during peacetime because we're constrained by the kind of uh, rules that we set up to to manage our economy and uh, and our politics and and so on i think one of the most astounding things to happen in the last 10 years has been the emergence of greta thunberg mm. i mean there is this child in sweden who just on her own was saying, I'm not going to school every Friday because why should I? I don't have a future. Who has made us focus. And when I met her, I just apologized like mad. I said, I am so sorry. This is not what children should be doing. That's what moms and dads are supposed to be doing, looking out for your future. But she has done more, it seems to me, to raise the reality that is coming from scientists. And her message is very simple. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to to the president. Listen to the scientists. What are the scientists saying? And what the scientists are saying is terrifying. I, as a child, have no future. Mm. 
Yeah. David, this has been such an enlightening hour and your passion is so greatly appreciated, even though it is sad and depressing. And, you know, here we are, but I appreciate you taking that voice now and, and amplifying it and raising it an octave or two for us because we can feel the urgency in your voice today. So thank you for bringing your message and joining me here on the show today. I really, really, really appreciate hearing from you. Thanks a lot. And I just want to leave you listeners with a brief quote from David. It, ugh, when we forget that we are embedded in the natural world, we also forget that what we do to our surroundings, we are doing to ourselves. And change is never easy. And it's often created discord. But when people come together for the good of humanity and the earth, we can accomplish great things. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Remember, together, we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.